Welcome to the Utah Shakespeare Festival's Play On podcast. This is your host, Nano Taggart. Today we have the privilege of speaking with a great duo of young actors, Erica Holland and Zach Powell. Erica is playing Isabella in Measure for Measure, Lady Percy in Henry IV Part I, and Adriana in Twelfth Night. This is her first time here at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. She has been at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, American Theater Company, and the Suitcase Shakespeare Company. Zach is playing Claudio in Measure for Measure and Sebastian in Twelfth Night. He has recently played Prince Henry in King John, Adrian in The Tempest, and Mercutio in the Shakespeare in Schools tour of Romeo and Juliet here at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. Second. You're in King John, right? I was, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Sweet. Corey Jones' son. Yeah. <laughs> obviously. Obviously, obviously. Typecasting, yeah. really. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah leave nothing to the imagination. <laughs> Thank you, Erica and Zach, for joining us. I know how busy you both are. I'm wondering if each of you could kind of start out and tell us about why, if there was a moment when you knew you had to surround your life with the arts, theater specifically, or if it was kind of a gradual thing. Uh, growing up or maybe in high school or college? For me, it, it was actually probably, it was a little more gradual. Um, I got involved in high school. I did a cool. play called Noises Off, which is, you know, yeah, hilarious. They did absolutely. it here a few years ago and, and it was so much fun. And we ended every single rehearsal. I was in tears because I was laughing so hard. So, <laughs> so that was definitely enjoyable. But then yeah. I, when I went to college, I thought I was going to be in music. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I was like, well, I'll split the difference. I'll go and I'll be in music theater and, so I can take like all my theory classes and my choir and everything like that. Yeah. And then, you know, if I decide to change paths, it'll be applicable. But instead I changed all the way. I went straight to theater. So, so no double I, major. I lost like a whole year of classes, <laughs> and, <laughs> right uh, but it was worth it. And it just took me a little while doing shows in college to realize like this is really what you want to do. What I really had to do. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. How about Erica? Well, I started by directing, producing, and playing Rizzo in Greece in the fifth grade. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's terrific. So it was really ambitious. Fifth, fifth, grade, fifth grade director. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a big uh, deal. Greece. You were, Greece. You were an overachiever as a child. Yeah, we lip-synced all the songs, including Sandra D. So <laughs> I had no idea what most of the things were about that we were lip-syncing about. Oh, that's so good. But anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but I would agree with Zach. My love for theater became gradual. I mean, uh-huh. I started off, uh, that was the best thing I ever did in the fifth grade. <laughs> but, um, I fell in love with the people, mm-hmm. really. So I got, I was very fortunate. I got to go to some summer camps and do things like go to festivals like this mm-hmm. when I was growing up. Yeah. And we talked to a lot of the artists that were involved and, just the way they spoke about what they did for a living. Yeah. Um, about the importance of being a full person, not mm-hmm. just an actor. Yeah. That was really compelling to me. And so seeing really great theater. Yeah. Is what has kept me passionate and involved in it. You feel like there's a kind of a connection with the audience that you just wouldn't experience in any other field? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Definitely. I yeah. mean, and especially here. At Utah, the audience that in the Adams Theater, and mm-hmm. that's the only theater that I'm working in right now. Cool. But um, just it feels like a community because you can see everyone 
especially in that first hour or so when the yeah. lights are st- like when when it's still daylight out uh-huh. it's incredible people are experiencing it with us it doesn't feel like a separation so that's really awesome for me it's the first time i've ever worked in an outdoor space oh wow that's terrific yeah, yeah. um this is your second time zach with coming to the shakespeare festival right yeah yeah i was here last season and then i also did the educational tour of romeo and juliet oh um, i'm right on mercutio right? yeah I yeah yeah, yeah awesome yeah. um what uh what brought you back for your second time around oh well it's it's just a fantastic place to work um I think the artists and the designers and the directors, you know, yeah. they're, they're wonderful people and you get a lot out of working with good artists. Yeah. And you, know, you get a lot back. But also to jump off of what Erica said, the audience relationship here with the, with the festival is pretty special. I mean, yeah. you guys have so many programs with, be it Camp Shakespeare or, you know, the junior acting program or the actor training program, um, or even just like the Grove seminars, the seminars and talkbacks. Yeah. It's like you really get a dialogue started with audience members, which is the whole reason why we do this yeah. job, is to make people think about things and, you know, hold the mirror up to nature, like Hamlin says. Um, so it's kind of great that it's so yeah. pointed up here. I think that's, cool. that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And the audience experiences it as a story. Yeah. Which is also incredible. I mean, I'm from Chicago and I love the audiences there. Yeah. Um, and not to say it's, it's not as theater snobby town or they don't have an appreciation for great art here because absolutely there's that, but it, it seems like everyone is experiencing a story, not picking apart a show piece by piece. Oh, cool. We're talking about the themes and what the yeah, characters cool. are doing, not what the actors are doing. Uh huh. Which I think is really special. That's cool. There's kind of a built in generosity in the model here. Yeah. That it seems like you both kind of commenting on. Yes. Very cool. Did you audition then in Chicago, Erica? Initially? Yes. I've actually been auditioning for this company for maybe five years. Oh, really? Right. Yeah. And this is your first year actually being here. Yes. Oh, that's terrific. What, yeah. what was that process like? Just kind of, I haven't talked to a lot of people about, I mean, especially someone that's auditioned. Uh, you know, several years. Well, I mean, it takes a while for you to get on the radar. They yeah. see so many people and there are so many talented actors. Yeah. Especially for women, uh, at a Shakespeare festival where there aren't that many roles. I yeah, mean, there, there are, are four or five roles, yeah. women in each of the three shows that I'm in with oh, probably wow. like 15 men. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's kind of what the ratio is mm-hmm. at big Shakespeare festivals like this. Hopefully that will change. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I just auditioned for them the first time, and then they started seeing me and recognizing me. The community gets smaller and smaller. Yeah. I start. I mean, I've worked with some of Zach's classmates from his grad program, so oh, all cool. who have also worked here. So then they're like, oh, okay, we know who she is. Yeah. Um, and then this year, I, I kind of had more of a relationship with Brian and David specifically. And cool. I asked to prepare something specific for the season, you know, to do aside from the season. And oh, cool. They had me put some stuff on tape. So, yeah. But it's it's a process. I mean, it's all about patience and persistence and yeah. also an appreciation for the fact that just because you don't get something mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you're not great. It's just how it works. It's mm-hmm. the matrix of casting. I mean, sometimes it means you're not great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, like, I think, I think actors get really discouraged. Uh-huh. And I've been on the other side of the casting table. Uh-huh. And so often there are so many talented actors. It's just about who fits with who. Yeah. It's about look. It's about height. It's about timing. And totally. Um, yeah. I, to keep I, that in mind. Yeah. 
I just got my first, uh, <laughs> normally they're like, you know, thanks, but we're, you know, going with something else or thanks, yeah. but we can't use you this season. Oh. I just got my first, thanks, but we really need someone taller. <laughs> you know? And I was like, no! That's like dating in college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. You mentioned the disparity between sort of male cast members and female cast members. And, and I didn't intend on bringing that up necessarily, but since you mentioned it, how do you think you fix that in, in, a, in a repertory theater that's built around, you know, at least half the productions being, if not Shakespeare plays, then sort of those canonical, you know, old plays? Well, it's an interesting question, and actually, uh, Melinda Funstein yeah. is creating, I, maybe I don't know if I should talk about this, but she's creating <laughs> this, this organization um, where women can talk about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I And actually, I talked to these men who were coming through with this Shakespeare on the Road thing, and they said there was this really compelling article written about casting for equity, yeah, and that our audience, our, uh, the what we see on stage should be a representation of our audience. Mm-hmm. And actually 70% of theater goers are women. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and so, I mean, I think it's about changing our perspective. I think there are lots of roles. If we're just looking at Shakespeare, yeah. that both men and women can play. Yeah. Um, and no, it's not conventional, but I think we have to start that shift in people we need to say well look at it this way and then it becomes the norm it's about making a small change mm-hmm. um and for me i mean i'm really interested in doing some male shakespearean monologues or yeah. that are conventionally male I, somebody told me there was a list of all the characters that could go either way that usually go oh cool male so i think that that's something that companies can keep in mind i mean it's just hard there are also way more women involved who want to be actors specifically yeah, i think yeah. than men um, so I think it's going to have to be a gradual change. <laughs> that makes sense, though, because, I mean, we're willing to put Comedy of Errors, you know, set it in the Old West or on the moon. Uh, Brad Carroll talked about a production. He was aware that it was, like, in space or on the moon or something. So why, you know, looking at it through that lens, why wouldn't we maybe be able to do these sorts of gender shifts that really happened uh, initially just in the other way around? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully that's the direction that we're going in. Terrific. You know, in, uh, I live in DC. Mm-hmm. And I love DC. So there's a big push next year. They're doing this project and it's a, it's a huge theater town, but 50 theaters made this agreement that next season, the first play they put on will be written by and directed by a woman. Oh, cool. So like there is a huge push happening there, like in that town to try and sort of get awareness and get more equality and, uh, yeah. Cause yeah. Yeah. It and- is tough. And obviously, it's not about taking away parts from men or or anything no, like no, that. No, no. Or I I don't feel well. And this isn't about pointing the finger either. No, like, no, no one, it's just about there's no making... one behind a curtain saying men. You know, yeah, it's just, just men. About it's just a tradition. Room. And, yeah. yeah, it's about making room. It's about opening our minds in a way that we might not have done before that we should be able to do. Yeah. In this time period. I wonder if we can shift gears and talk about Measure for Measure. Uh, I think it's one of the most just parentally underrated plays in the canon. I love it so much. Um, mm. You two play the brother and sister that are kind of at the center of this idea of morality, you know, flesh versus spirit, uh, you know, if you will. Um, I'm wondering if you could clear up the hand fasting ceremony. There is a lot of interpretation on whether sure. Claudio is actually, you know, married, how married he is, uh, what that means, mm-hmm. the hand fasting ceremony, how, how far... 
was he actually from this, um, you know, fornication from being legal? Right. So he says in the in the first scene when he's being led away to prison that uh, she is fast my wife. Yeah. Save that we do the denunciation lack of outward order. Yeah. So you can take that two ways. You can say she's practically my wife because we've been living together and we have every intention of getting married mm-hmm. and we've just been like putting it off because we're waiting for her dowry to come into play. Or you can say she is fast my wife, meaning like we've made the vow. We sort of publicly declared it, but we've never gone to the church. We've never like gone to the legal system to be like, hey, we are man and wife. Mm-hmm. Let's get this dowry thing figured out. Because they've been putting it off because her dowry has been in the care of her friends, which is an expression usually means that she's an orphan. Her family isn't there to take care of her and facilitate her funds yeah, and things. Yeah. And they don't really approve of our relationship. So we've been waiting to sort of win them over yeah. before we make it legal, before we make the big public announcement of, hey, we're man and wife now. So the idea is that because we haven't gone through the government, we haven't gone through the church to publicly declare uh-huh. that we are man and wife, that's the technicality that Angelo is arresting him on because yeah. she's now bearing his child. Um, when well, he's clearly uh, looking for someone to make an example of, to use as an example, right? Because he's been for sure set with the task of, you know, firming up the, the legal injustice system a little bit because the, the opinion of a lot of people in the right places is things have gotten too lax, mm-hmm. right, with law and order. So, You know, and if Steve were here, he might jump in and say he's trying to equally enforce the law all across the board. You know, he's cleaning up the streets. He's bringing in Pompey. He's bringing yeah. in uh, Mistress Overdone. But, you know, <laughs> Claudio is mildly famous. He's a nobleman. Yeah. So he's going to get a lot more attention. And then Aeschylus, the character of Aeschylus, yeah. makes the case, you know, his father was a noble. We should probably, like, let him go. And yeah. I think that sort of fuels Angela even more to be like, absolutely not. This is no. equal. This cool. is enforcing the law against everyone. I'm glad you mentioned Steve. Uh, he was our previous guest, one of them. And he kind of, I don't want to paraphrase him, take it out of context, but he, he kind of made the case that Angela is not that bad of a guy. And I'm wondering if, Erica, you could maybe talk on that from your perspective, because whether or not how you view his intentions, you know, this is certainly a guy that wants, you know, justice, whatever idea of justice, you know, your interpretation of that obviously is, you know, a a variable. But um, this is a guy that propositions your character and basically ransoms your brother's life in order to, I mean... In order to get some love. And he never <laughs> mentions marriage. You know, it's just mm-hmm. kind of, it's clear that he is attracted to you, maybe even for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. But what what do you think uh, of Angelo? Well, I mean, I think it's a it's a difficult play in this way, but I I think that Isabella and Angelo are flawed in the same way. Yeah. They <clears throat> both believe that there's a right and a wrong, mm-hmm. and there's no black and white. And I think this whole play is about them existing in the gray. Yeah. Because Angelo, yes, he he propositions Isabella. He has all these unfamiliar, repressed feelings that yeah. come out. And then when she denies him, there's shame and hurt. And I think a lot of what Angelo and Isabella both do comes from a place of hurt. Yeah. And shame to a certain extent. I mean, Isabella completely loses it on Claudio in the prison and says some of the worst things that I've ever heard one human being say to another. That is a hard scene. And so (laughs) to look at Angelo, yes, what he's doing is wrong. Uh Uh-huh. You know, I think, (laughs) obviously. But is he a bad character? 
Not necessarily. Yeah. He, he slips, he falls, he makes a huge mistake, and then continues to, like, tumble down into that kind of black hole. Uh-huh. And Isabella is the same way. I mean, this thing happens to her. She freaks out. She goes to her brother. And then she decides she's going to lie. She's going to send someone in to pretend to be her to sleep with Angelo. Uh-huh. Then she's going to lie in front of everyone. I mean, so I think Angelo becomes more human when you make Isabella more human. Yeah. And they both are. They're these characters who are in these extreme situations. It happens in two days. Things yeah. get totally out of control. And they both act from places of hurt, like from a gut yeah. feeling. Um, and that was very important to Steve right from the beginning. Yeah. Because why do we care about Angelo? He has this huge redemption at the end with Mariana. Absolutely, yeah. And we want to care. We want to be like, okay, we're okay with this. Uh-huh. He, was, he made a, a big mistake. Mm. But so did Isabella. You know, I mean, different, different That that scene between Angelo and Isabella is just incredible. Um, Oh, the writing. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, some of the most eloquent lines. I mean, it's just incredible. Oh, yeah. um, Do you think your character, when when Angelo initially propositions you, there is a sense, there's kind of a dramatic irony. And and Zach, you're welcome to, you know, chip in on this if you want to, even though it's not necessarily your character. Um, And that the audience is aware from the get-go that, you know, he's moving towards a proposition or a mm-hmm. proposition, but Isabella either is playing dumb or is actually that innocent and naive, and she doesn't seem to acknowledge it for quite a while. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because uh, I was talking to somebody about their relationship with God and how that changes as you have different experiences or yeah. your relationship with authority. Yeah. So... When at the beginning of the play, it's that's what this is. This is the authority figure. She respects the authority figure. She has no reason to question it. Yeah. I mean, he even says at the very beginning, she, he's like, your brother can't live. And she's like, okay, heaven keep your honor safe. And she goes to leave. And then Lucio convinces her to stay. Yeah. So there's this all, there's this kind of like, uh, this power that she doesn't question, that she has no reason to question. So I don't think she's playing dumb. Yeah. I don't think it's a naivety. I think it's just a faith in authority, like her faith in God. Yeah. She doesn't question it. And so even when he's saying all these things, I think she feels a little bit unsettled. Yeah. But there isn't this like, oh, this is you and me that we're talking about. It doesn't even cross her mind. Yeah. So that when it happens, it's so shocking. Mm-hmm. Just like when her brother says he won't die for her. I mean, she says, had he 20 heads to tender down on 20 bloody blocks, he'd yield yep. them up. I mean, she has these expectations of authority, of her relationship with family, of her relationship with God, and all of those things get tested. Well, and she equates legality uh, with God in a way similar to Angelo. Oh, absolutely. At the outset, at least. Absolutely. I mean, they their <clears throat> ideas of justice and mercy, of justice, are yeah. very similar. Uh-huh. Um, and I think she... F- you, you know, she has very specific opinions about Claudio. He's her brother, so she loves him, yeah. obviously. But she doesn't agree with him. He's not going to heaven. Yeah. In the way that she... In the way that she believes, yeah. Yeah, and so that's painful, too. All these things that she's experiencing, you would hope this character would feel empathy. Yeah. But she goes through the entire play just constantly getting her expectations disappointed. So in the end, when she really is able to forgive... 
and feel empathy and practice the mercy that she's been preaching the entire play, mm-hmm. it's, um, I feel the closest yeah. to God that she is throughout the whole play. Absolutely. Um, and there's one line. I'll stop talking in just a second. No, no, no this is no, wonderful. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> there's one line that I really clung to at the beginning of the play where one of the nuns, where I say, have you nuns no farther privileges yeah. to the other nun? And she says, are these not enough? And I say, yes, truly, I speak not as desiring more, but rather wishing a more strict restraint upon the sisterhood. And you have to ask yourself, why does somebody want a more strict restraint? Because they don't trust themselves? Because they don't believe in something? Mm -hmm. I need the rules to be applied to me, just like Angelo feels he needs the rules to be applied to him. She must believe internally that this can fix her. Yeah. So she's got to think there's something wrong internally then, right? Oh, yeah. I think, uh, absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. That's brilliant. Um. Your character, um, Claudio's speech, it's not as simple as you're going to be put to death because your character has this amazing speech. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if I could pull your arm to, to speak those lines, um, A, but to die and go, we know not where. Just just for me as a favor, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. And then we can talk a little bit about it. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll do a little bit of it. Wait. He says, uh, what is... Isabella's line, she says. And shame of life the hateful. Mm-hmm. Yes, so. I but to die and go we know not where. To lie in cold obstruction and to rot. This sensible warm motion to become a kneaded clod and the delighted spirit to bathe in fiery floods. Or to reside in thrilling region of thick ribbed ice. To be imprisoned in the viewless winds and blown with restless violence round about the world. Or to be worse than worse. Of those that lawless and in certain thought imagine howling, tis too horrible. Then he goes on to describe, yeah. like you know, <laughs> the weariest and most loathed worldly life that age, ache, penury, and imprisonment mm-hmm. can lay on nature is a paradise to what we fear of death. Really, so you know, any kind Thank of you. life at all, chills is man. better. Chills. <laughs> um, this isn't. We kind of have this conflict uh, centered around Christianity in the play. I feel that you're that those lines I think bring up, and that. We have this kind of New Testament um, idea of forgiveness, mm-hmm. you know, especially that's experienced in the final, you know, act mm-hmm. of the play. But we also have this very Augustinian and, you know, Dante take on mm-hmm. heaven and hell and black and white. And it's it's really complicated, isn't it, to, to wade through all of these different ideas inside of, of this idea of, of, you know, eternal life. Mm-hmm. And your character is at the center of it. Is that can you talk maybe about that fear of death? Um, and, and being made an example of from your character? Sure, exactly. Because the fear is, I mean, it's a big fear. This isn't, mm-hmm. you know, he's the, the capital H honor we see in, in Henry part one in this season. You know, there's none of that present when you speak of death. No, no, there's not. Um, this, I mean, there's a lot going on. I mean, first of all, he's, he'll never see his child. Yeah. You know, he'll never see the woman he loves again, but, you know, when you get down to it, I think we're all pretty scared of death and the unknown. Yeah. Right? I think just the very first line to die and go, we know not where. Yeah. It's like, I don't know what's waiting for me. I don't know if I'm going to be stuck in purgatory or be burned forever or, you know, imprisoned in the wind and forced to watch the evolution of the world until the end of time. Yeah. And it's, you just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of fear and uncertainty, right? There's a lot of fear in what we don't know. Absolutely. Um, and the whole thing is that he's going to be executed tomorrow. Yeah. So it's like... And it's he just had this awful 
interaction with his sister. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's like time is running out. She was my only hope for salvation. Yeah. When she comes in and initially, when Isabella tells Claudio that the only way to save his life is for her to give up her virginity, you know, his yeah. first response is very honorable. He's Absolutely. like, you will not do that. Absolutely not. But then the more he thinks about it, the more it's like, well, you know, I did that. It wasn't so bad. In fact, I kind of liked it. You know, it was like, you know, maybe you should reconsider. Yeah. Um, so it's, it is an interesting dilemma of life versus the soul. You know, the play, um, one of the major themes that, that I get out of the play is this idea that, um, should sexuality be legislated? Uh, kind of at the center of this, and it seems relevant even today, and it's kind of always been relevant. Um, do you think that's one of the main themes for you? If you if you were sitting in the audience, you know, looking at yourself up there on stage, is that one of the things you take home, or, or is it is it bigger? Is it more about forgiveness, you know, justice, or is it is it good because there's so many things to choose from, like a lot of Shakespeare texts? Yeah, I mean, the thing that makes this story so compelling to me is that. It's so messy. Mm -hmm. There are so many things to take from it. We have this corrupt society with all this sexuality. There are so many different pieces of the play. Yeah. And that's what makes it incredible. It can speak to anyone. I mean, we can talk about putting limits on sexuality and cleaning up the streets in that way, but we can also focus on mercy and justice or empathy. Um, and that to me is what, it's not a, a play that is all packaged up nicely yeah you know i mean i'm also working on henry mm -hmm. and that play feels like an action movie you know we have a sword fight and honor and all yeah. these incredible themes happening throughout the play but nothing it doesn't feel messy to mm -hmm. me in the way that measure for measure does and a lot of people talk about the ending of measure for measure what does it mean isabella doesn't speak yeah and even our laura's brilliant direction of the ending with John just reaching out his hand and really asking me that question. Yeah. I mean, the door's left open. Yeah. And right? that's incredible to me. That's the kind of theater that I want to be a part of where everyone's talking about what happened. Mm -hmm. And had, why. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, what do you think that meant? Well, I think it meant this. And, you know. Yeah. But, and what that implies. Yeah. I mean, even him asking, it's incredible that Shakespeare was writing these women. I mean, Isabella and also Lady Percy that I'm playing yeah. in Henry IV are two incredible women yeah. that are equal to men. It's amazing that we can't have more women on stage <laughs> with the way that Shakespeare was writing in that time. I mean, he's yeah, writing these, these women that face these men intellectually, physically. Um, and that's, that's a conversation, I think, to be had, too. And the way John, who plays the Duke, mm -hmm. is playing it so beautifully in the end when he... Instead of this, like, what's what's mine is yours and what is yours is mine, uh -huh. he uses it as a question, which is brilliant to me. It's not a statement. Yeah. And it's really asking this woman to be his partner, yeah. who he's watched throughout yeah. the entire play. I mean, and, and that's another piece of it, too. There are so many wonderful gems to discover. Uh -huh. You just did an amazing job of essentially... Uh, I think giving our listeners an elevator pitch to see this play <laughs> if they haven't seen it. Uh, Zach, could you maybe do the same thing? Like, why? <laughs> no, no pressure. Right? <laughs> okay, could you uh, tell people maybe they came here to, you know, just get a, get their Falstaff dose, see Henry and see the musical? Sure. Uh, make a case for spending some time in the Adams to see this play. Sure. Well, I think 
what Erica briefly touched on too is that this play is, you know, sometimes people deem it as a problem play because it's not nice, nice and neat and tied up. Yeah, it's not tied up as like this wonderful little light comedy. It's not this huge tragedy. Yeah, but it is incredibly human and gutsy and just visceral and vulnerable. And people, good people, making horrible mistakes. And, you know, the quote unquote, you know, villains having the best of honorable intentions. Yeah. Um, so I think it's interesting because it does take place all in the gray area and raises complicated, cool moral questions that, you know, you always hear the audience discussing after the play. I think that's great. That's terrific. Um, you know, it isn't the uh, romance action movie that Henry is and isn't sort of the crazy, cr- zany comedy of comedy of errors. You know, it's something really real and grounded and dirty and wonderful. Yeah, and there's something kind of generous about uh, the door being so open in this play to the audience's interpretation Yeah, that you both um, kind of spoke on a little bit. Yeah. And it adds something to the experience to that uh, we let off with, with the, the amazing relationship you have here as a performer with the audience. And it seems like this is the kind of play that um, maximizes that in a way because really so much is is up to the audience and making their mind up on, on you know that last scene is is mm-hmm. difficult you know uh, and it seems like it plays in so well to what, what we're trying to achieve here at the Shakespeare Festival yeah and I wish I don't know I wish the house was full every night for every play obviously uh, but thank you you both made such a compelling case for why this play matters uh, why people should spend you know, three hours and, you know, $45 on a ticket or whatever it is. So oh, yeah. we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, yeah. Zach. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for your continued listening to the Play On podcast. We've enjoyed great success thanks to you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would be honored if you'd help spread the word by telling your friends and family. Stay tuned through the rest of this summer season and into the fall season We'll be visiting with a number of talented artists in the coming weeks, including technical and design artists.